Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities podcast. Our guest today has been a guest before. We're glad to have Blair Thomas Hess uh, back uh, before our Think Humanities uh, podcast microphone uh, to talk about a number of things. First of all, uh, as you may or may not know or remember, she is a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau and has uh, two talks uh, ready to now that we may be traveling a little bit more around the state. She's uh, uh, willing to do that, I believe. We'll ask her if she is. If not, uh, virtually, she's available. Uh, but um, we'll also all admit that we're uh, getting a little tired of that, maybe. A little fatigue is setting in on the old Zoom master. And she's also the uh, co-author of four publications uh, about Kentucky, and we'll talk to her about that. So welcome, and it's good to see you again. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Your, your writing life uh, with your co-author, Cameron Ludwig, who just happens to have a residence now in, in Texas, uh, but uh, I know there are communications uh, back and forth between you two probably every day. Uh, you're you're most good every day. friends. Yeah, mm -hmm. most every day. So um, in this, uh, this period of pandemic that we've been in, uh, celebrating a year, if that's something to, to celebrate. What's it been like for the travel public in Kentucky and particularly for someone like you and Cameron who um, have uh, published some terrific uh, books about things that you can do and see and eat and drink <laughs> in the state of Kentucky. So uh, tell me a little bit about your, your feelings about COVID and, and what you do. Sure. Well, um, COVID certainly changed the way we travel um, for better or for worse. And I think in both ways, some. Um, and I think that, you know, we're going to see some things that stick a little bit um, with the travel industry that have changed and then some things that will go back to some semblance of normal. But the biggest thing I can say is uh, travel around the state during the time of COVID has really um done away with all people who are just kind of spontaneous travelers, I'm sorry, taking all the spontaneity out of traveling. Um, you can't just hop in your car and decide when you get there where you're going. Um, and in the early days when Cameron and I were starting my old Kentucky road trip and getting in the car as two friends who were going to go out and explore our state, you know, we kind of did that. We planned sometimes that sometimes we just got in the car and said, we're going to go west and we're going to go west until we get tired of driving west. And then we're going to pick something when we get there. Um, with COVID, there's a lot more planning involved. We did get out and about last year um, in the warmer months and summer, but it took a lot more calling ahead, um, visiting websites and social media platforms and making sure that places not just were open, but that they had tours available or they had, you know, certain um procedures in place to help people stay safe and, and stay healthy while still getting to experience these things. So there's been much more planning involved, um, a lot less just let's figure it out when we get there. Um, but it's still definitely possible. And so many of our Kentucky travel destinations are open for business and they are really excited to have people come visit them. So we certainly have been trying to encourage people to still get out and explore, um, even in, in those safe ways. I was going to ask you if you've checked with the uh, the travel industry in Kentucky or 
the uh, state park system or uh, the lakes region or whatever it happens to be. Um, and you're comfortable in in saying that they are opening and they um, are there. I would imagine as we're taping this um, just at the uh, end of March and uh, the first of April, there are still going to be travel uh, restrictions or uh, housing restrictions, uh, that, that sort of thing in place. Well, what are those? Will that really um, will that really keep somebody from enjoying a, a state park vacation? No, not at all. Um, last summer, we started out easy um, with a couple of just road trips to uh, Natural Bridge, to Fort Boonesboro, to kind of some of the outdoor spaces that didn't require somewhere to stay overnight, didn't require us to really go indoors at all. Um, and those parks were just, they're so organized. You know, they, they keep you in such small tour groups. They still did guided tours. Everyone wore masks when they were anywhere indoors or covered, but you were able to take masks off when you were outside and continue to maintain six feet. Those policies are, of course, evolving a little bit as COVID comes and goes, you know, and we figure out exactly where we are, you know, when this is airing and when we're talking, those those uh, policies change. But they're, they're just so responsible in, in wanting to still offer everything um, that they really are making changes to make it still inviting. Um, but we did end up, we did some camping. We, we ex, um, took advantage of some of the great state park campgrounds around, um, which was a great experience. I'm not a particularly avid camper. It's not something I've really enjoyed since I was a kid, but I do think that it was a great experience for for us to take. I have a five-year-old and she loved it. You know, it's just a, a different way for people to explore places. Um, but we have been to state parks with, with um, lodging. We stayed at Lake Barkley State Park in a cabin. We stayed at Carter Caves in the lodge there. Um, we went to Cumberland Falls and got a bunkhouse there. And they just have taken cleaning to the next level. Um, I mean, they are, they're doing everything that they can to sanitize. Um, they don't do daily service to the room. So you have to call for extra towels or anything you might need. But that just really uh, reduces the number of people in and out of your room, which is a safe thing for them to do. Um, they just, you know, travel in Kentucky has always been so hospitable everywhere you go, whether it be a state park or an affiliated park, they're just so welcoming. And this is no different. I mean, they have done just above and beyond to really make sure that you still feel safe and, and comfortable there. And I would say about the time, uh, or maybe since then too, there are new modes of uh, staying overnight. Uh, I looked into glamping, uh, yes. which is uh, a new feature that this um, uh, young couple and their children uh, started. Uh, and uh, if you know a little bit about that, you can talk about it. And also uh, treehouse uh, living uh, down in the gorge. And I don't know if that's in other places around Kentucky too. So I'll bet you we're going to see more of that kind of thing. Um, uh, did, did Do you have evidence that maybe that uh, agritourism or, or, uh, or, uh, I guess that would be outdoor tourism, that sort of thing is, is going to be uh, more prevalent in Kentucky. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's one of those things that we're going to see as a good change following COVID with tourism. Um, you know, places had to get creative, whether it was an official state park or just a campground nearby a state park that was, you know, a, a open for, for business for people kind of as an overflow, they had to get creative in the way that they were attracting visitors. Um, and so, you know, I brought up camping. That's something that I wouldn't typically think to try, 
Um, but we had some great experiences because they were offering things like bunk houses instead of a tent, you know, where you're, you're indoors, you have a bed and you have a little microwave, but not a kitchen, not running water, not a bathroom. Um, they have in some places covered wagons where you can spend the night in a, in an old covered wagon. <laughs> um, they certainly have uh, glamping where you can rent a camper for the night and really kind of do a very fancy version of not sleep, having to sleep on the ground. Um, my sister and I joke that we invented glamping years ago because <laughs> when we camp in tents, we may actually camp in the tent, but we order pizza to the campground. <laughs> you know, we go out to dinner at night. Like we don't cook anything over a fire, you know, unless it involves a marshmallow and some chocolate. So, you know, but there, there's just so many things that were suddenly offered to get people to encourage people to come out and to still, to still do things. And I think those things will stick around because they have been successful. Why do you think Kentucky has such a maybe world uh, renown, uh, at least in the in the continental United States renown um, following when it comes to state parks and uh, the the beauty and the um, the hospitality, as you mentioned. But it always seems like when you're uh, traveling out of state uh, and you get engaged in conversation, people mention what a beautiful time they had at one of our state parks. Why is that? And how long, how long, how far back does that go? Um, I think that how far back it goes is, is why they're so successful. Mm-hmm. And I think when so many of these state parks, particularly the state resort parks that have lodges or cabins available were built, they were just, they were built so well and they were done so well and they were marketed so well. I mean, they were huge, big events for, for your family to travel to a state park and stay in one of these grand lodges. Um, and I, and I think that they not only built a hotel, um, you know, they built an entire experience. I use Lake Barkley state resort park as an example, cause it's one of my favorites in the state. And my grandfather actually used to be a park ranger there. My dad grew up lifeguarding there. So it's just, some, it's one of those very familiar places for me. And when you visit there, they have the lodge, they have the restaurant, they have, you know, game rooms, activities for children, they have nature tours, they have indoor and outdoor pools and rec rooms. Oh, and there's a lake there, you know, and a Mm -hmm. beach and nature. They're just, they didn't build a hotel on a, on a piece of land. They built an entire experience, an entire vacation confined to that one location. And so when you visit a state park, you know, I always tell folks you, you can make a whole weekend out of it, a whole week out of it if you want to, um, because there's so much to do to fill the time. And I, I think that Kentucky is unique in the fact that you can start on the east side and you can go to the west side and then the north and then the south. And each place looks different. You get a different experience, a different feel. It's almost like you've traveled outside of the state to other destinations. And yet each of those parks has that same welcoming feel, those same experiences, and it just really makes them very successful. Well, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, uh, Blair is a member of our Speakers Bureau. The speakers um, uh, in the Bureau, and there are um, many of them. We, we have quite a number, uh, over 50 now on every subject from history to travel uh, to uh, l- writing, uh, literature. Um, uh, we have college presidents. Uh, we have historians. Uh, it's just a, a great wealth of information for all of you, whether it's your classroom, your church, or your social gathering, your family, uh, they're available to uh, to travel. And right now, I'm, I understand from talking to a lot of our Speakers Bureau members that uh, they are getting out and they they want to be in person. They might not be able to give you a big hug at this point, but uh, at least uh, to appear, maybe everybody would be masked up for a while. But if you're keeping your 
social distance. I don't think we're ever going to get to a point, do you, uh, Blair, when we're going to have uh, a, a show of hands of all those who've been vaccinated. I don't think we're going to get that far. <laughs> but um, they are available. And, and Blair uh, does two things for Kentucky Humanity. She has one talk, uh, which is uh, titled Exploring Kentucky Historical Destinations and Natural Wonders. And the second one, Around My Kentucky Table, The History and Tradition of the Most Famous Kentucky Flavors, which, of course, is talking about food. Let's just start with that one and uh, talk about the um, wonders of uh, traveling uh, to a destination for Kentucky food and how exciting that's going to be. I've heard people say that once they, when they get out, uh, they're going to spend a little bit extra time driving to dinner, maybe driving an hour or two away just to have a a good uh, home-cooked uh, Kentucky meal. So tell us about some of those that you've included and some of the foods that you would suggest uh, uh, in all parts of the state people uh, can can visit and, and chomp down on. Sure. Well, it's it's definitely a tough job driving around and eating food. Um, <laughs> how I got stuck with that. Um, no, I always tell folks, I warn them when I, at the beginning of that talk that, you know, I'm not a chef, not a culinary master. I'm not even a, a big foodie. I just... I, we came at the food angle um, and our fascination with food in the state of Kentucky from more of a cultural standpoint. It is so interesting to me how foods get to where they are and why they're popular there and why communities latch on to them and why you know they're why they become famous Kentucky flavors. Um, and one of the saddest things about 2020 was just the canceled everything. You know the the food festivals and the state fairs and the county fairs across Kentucky are are incredible destinations for anyone, but particularly for folks who enjoy Kentucky food. Um, the barbecue in Western Kentucky is absolutely amazing. There's the International Barbecue Festival in Owensboro, um, the Country Ham Festival in Western Kentucky. We have banana festivals, and a lot of people don't think of Kentucky being famous for bananas, um, but it actually used to be the stop where banana freight tra- uh, freight cars on their way north were stopped and, de- and re-iced in Fulton, Kentucky. So we have a banana festival that celebrates that with the world's largest banana pudding. I strongly suggest you try that. <laughs> There's the uh, chicken festival, of course, um, where Colonel Sanders is from. You know, there's just, there's all these really unique things and all of them, while delicious, and I su- definitely suggest going for the food. Um, but, you know, it's it's all about the culture of Kentucky. And that's what I think is so unique about the state is, is every piece of that has a story. You know, we're famous for bananas for this reason. I think that's just so cool. You know, we're famous for chicken because this man named Colonel Sanders decided to start a massive international franchise here. You know, there are just things that they have stories and they have histories and they're so unique. Um, and so it's always just one of my favorite things to do is to talk to people about Kentucky food and to to kind of surprise them that it's a little bit more than just fried chicken. Tell us about um, Burgoo. And uh, the reason I'm bringing that up before I talk about anything else is because, as you may or may not know, we do a history segment on WEKU uh, radio uh, every morning and every afternoon. And uh, they're just uh, little uh, moments in Kentucky history. And one that I read uh, just uh, a few days ago was about uh, Kentucky Burgoo and how it got started and what politicians were connected to it and all of that. And uh, Burgoo is still very, very popular in uh, a lot of gatherings, uh, political uh, stump uh, speakings and that sort of thing. Uh, what, do, what do you what can you tell us about Burgoo? The thing that I think is so interesting about Burgoo that I think a lot of Kentucky foods come back to is that these foods are born out of necessity, right? You know, Burgoo is 
Burgoo is famous because it's kind of whatever you had in the kitchen to throw in. You know, it's it's not always, I think a lot of folks these days eat it with, with beef or chicken or pork, but usually, usually it was game or anything you had around and whatever vegetables were available. And, you know, these were dishes, you know, prepared to serve large groups of people, whether it be families to make it last longer or big groups, you know, at political events. Um, and I think that those historical things are, are just such, they're such neat things. And, and the other cool thing I think about burku and other foods is that every story, you know, of their origin has somebody else saying that's not exactly right. You know, it's just like the bourbon industry. Everywhere you go, it's the first, the best, you know, the the earliest one. And yet the next one is the same story. So I love hearing kind of the tall tales of whether or not it was a French chef who first developed burgoo or whether it was Buffalo Trace, you know, that came up with it. I just think that that's such a cool, a cool aspect of, of Kentucky flavors. If you were going to, uh, and as far as you know, I guess, I mean, you haven't checked with all of these outlets. When you mention a place by name, I, I don't know if you have been keeping up a checklist of those who have stayed open or or survived during COVID. I mean, that that's kind of tough to do, but there've been just in the city areas of uh, Lexington and Louisville, for example, there've been so many restaurants that, that have closed. Now, at the same time, there've been a lot of new ones that are startups and, and are beginning. Um, do, do you know, do you have any uh, uh, information on what's open and what's not and what's closed and um, when they're going to open back up and, I don't. I, I don't keep up with it enough as I should, mainly because there's just too many of them. I do know that, you know, I know Lexington for sure. They have a fantastic uh, Visit Lex website and a, a great tourism department that really keeps track of things like that. I'm sure Louisville does as well. Um, you know, it is. And that's, you know, it's why we encourage people to get out and travel as much as, as we can. You know, restaurants are are their own beast in terms of supporting and making sure you're you're eating local and, and supporting those local businesses. But same thing with tourism. You know, if we We've got to get out and be patrons at these businesses and really give our support to these Kentucky businesses because they're such a huge part of the identity of the state. Um, and you just hate to lose any of that, you know, as a result of COVID. Put you on the spot just a little bit. And um, I, I seriously have no idea where you are. Uh, you, you, I think, are in central Kentucky. And let's just say in the central Kentucky area, if you were to suggest that um, – a family um, jump in the car and within a reasonable drive, let's say two hours, what's reasonable these days? And they haven't been out of the house and, and want to get out and uh, the weather's good. I think Saturday, um, well, this won't air before Saturday, but uh, Saturday, for example, would be a good day to go out and roll down the windows of the car and take a deep breath of that fresh Kentucky spring air. Where would you suggest that someone go for for a lunch or a dinner that is unique, uh, delicious, um, that uh, is more than likely open, social distanced inside, but maybe they have a terrific outdoor patio. Um, give us an idea of what what you would do. Just one one location. Oh goodness, I, I can't put me on a spot with actual locations, but. I I will say I am in central Kentucky. Um, I live in Frankfurt and um, we love to kind of do that where you just get in about out and about and you drive. We drive a lot into Lexington. There's some um, any of the um, Zim's Cafe in, in Lexington or uh, Windy Corner or any of a Weta's. Weta Michaels. Are, yes. I mean, any of her spots are guaranteed to be absolutely amazing. Um, and here in Frankfurt, you know, we go down to Gibby's a lot, um, which is downtown and they have a great outdoor space and menu. They're doing a lot of carry out still, um, but, but still it's a great local business. 
um, to give some patron to. There's some there's some great locations in Louisville. I'm I'm a terrible person to do this to because I'm I'm not as familiar with all of them that are open. Um, but they're you know they're great about having those things on Facebook and on social media. That's that's something that I always tell folks when they ask me for travel advice in general, whether it be food destinations or just in general. You know, go on their Facebook pages, even if they haven't updated. People have. You know, people have commented about whether or not they've had great experiences there. Um, you know, they have, they have said it's open, it's great. You can only do carry out, but you can eat in the parking lot on a picnic table or, um, you know, and that's, it's such great information to be able to, to share that with your fellow Kentuckians um, because they're encouraging people to get out and go and see and do and eat and enjoy. Um, but, you know, not be disappointed when you get there and you find out it's closed on Saturday afternoons. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll, um, we'll uh, think about those. Uh, and I think we're going to get back to a little bit more of a state of normalcy soon and we can, we can all do that. Now, uh, Blair, your other talk is exploring Kentucky historical destinations and natural wonders. Tell us a little bit about what you include in uh, in that address. Sure. So that is kind of what the heart of what Cameron and I set out to do back in 2009 or 10 when we started Mile Kentucky Road Trip. The premise was to get in the car with your friend and to explore your own backyard. Um, you know, it started that it was a conversation Cameron and I were having one day when she revealed to me that she was 20 something years old and had never been to Mammoth Cave. And I said, you have a national park a couple of hours from your house. Have you not been to to Mammoth Cave? Um, But that started a conversation about the fact that, you know, when we were kids and we went on vacation, we left the state and it wasn't really anyone's fault. It's just, we went to Florida or we went to a beach or, you know, we went out West or you went to Europe, you know, you got to out and travel and a lot of people just missed opportunities in their own backyard. And so we set out to kind of popularize those and to show folks how to do it and to have fun and, and kind of get in the car and what you could do in a day, how big of a loop you could make and how deep you wanted to get into all of that. And so in that, we discovered a lot of, you know, the, just the history of Kentucky and a lot of the really natural spaces that are here to explore. And so that talk is really at the heart of that, you know, how to go out and, and experience the history of Kentucky. There's some great, really unique stories here to be, to be told and to and to experience and then, you know, to explore those natural areas. Now, that's something that we have taken advantage of more in the past year than ever before, because it was the safest thing to do was to be outside and to hike and, and to see those natural formations and things. And, and so that talk is just really about what you can do in Kentucky and, and why they're here and how they got here and how it impacts us today. Uh, that is uh, Blair Thomas Hess. She is uh, a member of our Speakers Bureau, and we talked about a couple of the um, uh, uh, talks that she is available to give uh, to you and your group uh, um, anywhere in Kentucky. Uh, she's doing some virtually now, and pretty soon we'll be out and about. When you're opening up, she's ready to uh, to do the same thing. And all of that information is on our Kentucky Humanities uh, website at uh, uh, KentuckyHumanities.org, KYHumanities.org, and you can find uh, her and uh, uh, the other speaker uh, speakers that are listed in the bureau. Uh, we're going to take a pause here and come back and talk about uh, four of uh, her books that she uh, co-authors with Cameron Ludwig, and we'll talk about uh, one or two of those uh, specifically right after this uh, word from our good friends at Spalding University. At Spalding University's School of Creative and Professional Writing, Students develop mastery of the writing skills, highly prized in today's workplace, including arts and humanities organizations, government agencies, corporations, and small businesses. A professional writing student will explore opportunities writing for trade and consumer media, 
including reviews, profiles, interviews, and articles for sports, food, travel, health and science, and other publications. Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. All right, we're back on the Think Humanities podcast with uh, Blair Thomas Hess, uh, who is a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. Uh, again, information on, on Blair and uh, our other speakers in the Speakers Bureau who are available uh, pretty soon. I bet you everybody's going to be anxious to kind of get out and about and, uh, and, and meet with you and meet some new friends and travel all over this uh, wonderful state of Kentucky. Uh, we mentioned the four books uh, that... Uh, Blair and her co-author Cameron Ludwig uh, have written. Uh, we have mentioned uh, the the original My Old Kentucky Road Trip Historic Destinations and Natural Wonders, a history and guide, but there are three others. And I'm going to ask you if you would, because I think is the um, the Civil War um, presentation, the, the president presidents, battles and must see Civil War destinations exploring a Kentucky divided. Is that the, the latest one? That, uh, yes. So we, we published um, that at the same time we published the food book. So they, they came out together. So that and Famous Kentucky Flavors are our most recent. So tell us about um, what you learned and what is in the book, uh, President's Battles and Musty Civil War De- Destinations. Sure. Well, you know, this one came about really because Cameron is a huge history nerd. Um, and so, you know, as we were going out and about and traveling the state, you know, she was drawn to the historical markers everywhere we went. She was always trying to read, you know, what was here before when we were, you know, where we were standing. And so we really wanted to approach the Civil War book as a travel destination book, not just a history book about the Civil War. I'm sure there are many historians out there and many historians who have attended my talks who would love to tell me all the things that I do not include in the book (laughs) um, about the Civil War. But we really wanted you to be able to say, if you're interested in the Civil War and you're interested in the history of Kentucky's role in the Civil War, because it was a border state, it wasn't really for the North or the South, what that means and where you can go to see it in action. And those are some of the destinations we wanted to include here. Um, And I think that it all started with the idea that both presidents during the Civil War of the United States and of the South were from Kentucky and they grew up 40 miles from one another. And I just think that that always comes back, you know, no matter how ugly the history can be of the, of the country, it's just so interesting to me that those two individuals were born, you know, within 40 miles of each other and took such very, very different routes in life. And yet so very similar, They, they both became leaders in their own, in their own way. Where are some of the other areas that you send people uh, that maybe uh, as a history nerd, uh, Cameron didn't even know of and discovered uh, during your research? Well, we, we went to all the battle reenactments. And, and let me tell you about experiencing a battle reenactment. If you haven't, you should go. Um, that was something that Cameron was so excited about going to these battle reenactments. We had heard of Perryville, but there, there are some others that are in the book that you know, you go and you see people in costume and you think, oh, this is cool. You know, they're going to dress up and and we're going to have a little, you know, reenactment here. No, they, you know, they don't break character. They don't, they camp there in the historical tents and eat the historical food. There are not cell phones there. Um, You know, they stake in character so much and they, and they live and breathe the story. And so you can ask any one of them, whether it's a young kid doing it with his dad, or it's one of these older members of the infantry who have done this for years and years and years, and they can tell you the history of what, you know, they're, where we're standing and what was here. And, 
and the battles that took place. And, you know, in, in Kentucky, there weren't a lot of huge pivotal battles, but there were just a lot of things, um, you know, huge pieces of the, the war that came into play that there, you can go and stand and watch them recreate. And I would encourage folks to go to any chance you can go to a battle or enactment, go and experience it just to see what it's all about. By any chance, um, are you, did you write about uh, Russellville, Kentucky, and um, what is now uh, about a 10-year-old museum down there uh, named the Seek, S-E-E-K, Seek Museum? I don't believe the Seek Museum's in the book. Russellville um, the book, but not the Seek Museum. Yeah, what, do, do, do you remember, uh, is Russellville there because of their tendency toward the Confederacy or because of the um slave movement there or what do you remember it is so yeah we talk a little bit about russellville and, and how they were kind of breaking towards the south some we also talk about same thing with bowling green in that area how there were huge sections of it that would you know go one way and then be pulled back the other which is really interesting and those are really the only areas of the state that were ever really distinctively for the south um, and, and, and two, you know, there's there's some very interesting information in there about just African-American cemeteries and things around the state that are commemorative of the African-Americans that were fighting in the Civil War, because they also play such an integral role in Kentucky in that battle um, that is sometimes left out of that. And I'll bet you when you're doing that, you, you probably also mentioned Camp Nelson. We do. And, and we always encourage folks to go to Camp Nelson. They do um, some really neat tours there. Of course, you can always just walk around and explore. They also do a really great ghost tour there, which whether or not you believe any of that's true, it is very entertaining to walk around on a cold, you know, October night and do a ghost tour and hear all the stories about the soldiers that were stationed there. Uh, the Sikh Museum is uh, just recently named. I'm not sure that it uh, was renamed or maybe it was called something else for a while, but just in the last year, uh, have uh, we at Kentucky Humanities uh, found out and discovered that uh, there's just a, a very loyal, uh, passionate group of um, historians, amateur historians in Russellville who are now beginning to gather um, materials and, and put together. Um, they have some houses they've restored, which were slave uh, quarters. Um, the the one of the first uh, African-American uh, journalist um, it, uh, covering Washington, Alice Dunnigan, uh, the statue of uh, Dunnigan you've probably heard of uh, that. That's she's from there. That statue is uh, is now uh, on the grounds of the, the Sikh Museum. It's, it's really pretty fascinating. And it's something I haven't visited yet because I just found out it uh, found out about it during covid and I was not able to travel down there yet. But I think it's going to be one of my first destinations once we uh, we hit the road. So that is um, that's on uh, the, the Civil War in Kentucky. And uh, but I, I think one of uh, your your favorites and one of your bestsellers uh, is around my Kentucky table, uh, the history and tradition of the most famous Kentucky flavors. Uh, you um, you wrote about all of them. So tell us <laughs> a, a little bit about that publication, please. Sure. It's a it's a book where we again, you know, everything we've done to to this point has been all about getting in your car and going and experiencing Kentucky. So we want to tell you the history. We want to tell you the traditions and the food and the culture, but we want you to get in the car and go there and experience it for yourself as, as well, because that just really brings it home. Um, and so in, in the famous Kentucky flavors book, you know, it's, it's all about what the, those famous flavors are, everything from 
things you've heard of, like the fried chicken and the country ham and the burgoo and the hot brown, um, to the lesser known things like getta and Benedictine um, and bib lettuce and that sort of thing that you may not always tie into Kentucky. And so, we, what was the first one you mentioned? Um, getta. Oh gosh, you see, there's stump the host. What in the world is that? Uh, getta is a type of sausage grain mixture. Um, it is most popular in Northern Kentucky, Newport, Covington area. It was brought over by the German heritage in that area is very strong and is brought over kind of in the German culture. Um, and really it's another thing like burgoo. It's something that was uh, created to feed more people with less meat. So you combine your sausage or your beef with, it's usually sausage, pork sausage with a grain, like an oat or something, and you fry it the same. And it's just added a little bit of that oat flavor to the sausage, but it's, it's spelled not like it looks. It's spelled like a G O E T T A, but it we in Kentucky we say getta. Um, it's very good. You can get a lot of restaurants um, around the state if if you ask for it. Oh, have, have they have it on the menu? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. What's another um, regional food that uh, is a favorite of yours? Um, uh, that that you said Northern Kentucky. Uh, we talked about Burgoo in Western Kentucky. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, what about an Appalachian or Eastern Kentucky uh, food? Something like, um, isn't there a stack cake? There uh, is a stack cake, yeah, which is always a question as to whether or not what is in the stack cake. Um, <laughs> I always think of transparent pie as sort of a Northeastern area, um, which is basically just a chess pie or a pecan pie with no nuts in it. Um, <laughs> transparent pie, I always think of the Maysville, Flemingsburg area with that. Um, I always, of course, associate Louisville with hot browns and the Brown Hotel, which um, hot browns are always a, a nice thing to get. Um, yeah, you know, that's the thing about Kentucky food. It's just so unique no matter where you go. And, you know, barbecue in one area of the state may be one way, and then you get into the the most western part of the state and barbecue is is likely mutton or goat meat. Um, you know, it's just, it just differs and depending on who your family was and what you grew up on, it's, it's very interesting. And as a, a connoisseur of fine bourbon, you are uh, qualified as an expert in that uh, area uh, of, of, of being a taster. Um, but isn't it amazing uh, the time that uh, you've been writing? And uh, I think you said you and Cameron started in 2009 or so. I mean, just just think about that that 10, 12 year period, the growth and popularity of of Kentucky bourbon. Oh, it's incredible. Um, and I, I live in Frankfurt now, just a few miles from Buffalo Trace. And just the growth in popularity in this region um, in the past few years is incredible. Uh, we published the state of bourbon a few years ago and it has stayed very timely. Um, but even in that, I feel like it's slowly becoming out of date as you, as these places expand and the market grows. And I mean, it's incredible what the bourbon industry is doing um, and it's incredible what it's doing for Kentucky's economy, you know, the tourism side, but also in the import export side and, it's just, it's, it absolutely will blow you away. The people's fascination and obsession with bourbon is, is unparalleled. It's absolutely amazing. And I believe I'm correct about this. And it just happened uh, today. I'm going to look real quickly, but I probably can't find it that quickly. Mm -hmm. But didn't the first, yep, here it is. One of bourbon's oldest brands is releasing its first whiskey under a woman's name. Old Forrester, the original Brown Foreman brand that has uh, seen a resurgence in popularity, is launching a new uh, label. And for the first time ever, 
Jackie Zakin, Zikan. Um, let's see, will be the first expression delivered by Old Forrester. Oh, she's the taster. We got to find the, the woman that this is named after. Um, anyway, it's on there. But I, I would just say to that, it's about time, don't you think? No kidding. I mean, there have been a lot of cases throughout history in Kentucky where, you know, bur- women played a huge role in the bourbon industry. And, you know, almost any tour you take at a bourbon distillery across the state, if you ask them about what caused such a boom in the bourbon industry post-prohibition, they'll tell you females. Women started to drink bourbon, um, you know, in marketing it to women and and bringing women into the conversation, whether they were the master distillers or just into the marketing of it or, or what, you know, it really expanded it. Um, And and there are women sprinkled throughout all of bourbon's history is very, very important parts of that. And it it just kind of gets glossed over in a lot of ways and in a lot of the big names, you know, too. So I do think it's about time. I think that we're, we're overdue for um, a really, you know, prominent female to be, to be showcased in a bourbon. So one last question on bourbon um, uh, to wrap up. If you were going to advise, suggest um, a trip, uh, a day trip that we were all we should be familiar with the bourbon trail now. Mm-hmm. But what would you suggest to what one or two or three that are fairly close together that you would suggest uh, people visit? Should they go to downtown Louisville? Should they go out in the, uh, to Loretto and make their way back uh, uh, the Bargetown area? Uh, what, what, what would you suggest people do if they really want a bourbon experience in a short period of time? I think it's all what kind of bourbon experience you want. I would certainly advise going to Louisville if you want that sort of urban bourbon experience. They have a great uh, whiskey row with lots of um, bourbon experiences there that I think they're really interesting. They have some smaller distilleries like Peerless Distilling um, that you can also tour kind of in that area. Brown Foreman is there. So, I mean, it's a great experience, but I, I also think um, around the Frankfurt area, you know, really Frankfurt, Millville, that area is really the birthplace of bourbon. Um, you can hit Buffalo Trace, which is not on the Bourbon Trail, but is obviously a very popular brand, Buffalo Trace and Castle and Key and Woodford Reserve are all very, very close together. Um, Maker's Mark is kind of a hike out there, but I do think that if you went as far out of Maker's Mark and started to work your way back in, um, it, it'd be really neat. Four Roses is easy to get to and near Wild Turkey. So, um, you know, they're very close together. I think that um, you could probably get to more bourbon distilleries for more tastings than you'd be able to continue the drive of, of getting your tastings. <laughs> you probably need to have a driver by that time, but there's so many really cool things. And each one of them does a fantastic tour. Um, I have not been on a bad bourbon distillery tour, and it's not just because you get a tasting at the end. They do a great job of walking around their beautiful buildings and, and scenery. I mean, they're, they're really incredible tours. There's not, there's not one I wouldn't recommend. It's also amazing at times to read of or travel through uh, Bowling Green or Owensboro or even smaller towns than that. And, and they now have their own distillery and their own bourbon. And yeah, I love it that they're coming up with their own and they each have their own identity because we talk about these bourbons that have been around forever and these, these brands that have switched names and they're so historic. But there are so many new good distilleries popping up that we'll be talking about 10, 20 years from now, just the way we are with this. Well, Blair Thomas Hess, you are a wonderful guest uh, for Think Humanities uh, and a member of our Speakers Bureau. We appreciate all the the knowledge you impart uh, every time we have you on, and we'll uh, uh, wish the best uh, to you and and Cameron as you uh, get out and about in uh, the state of Kentucky once again with all the rest of us. So uh, honk or wave if we happen to pass along the, uh, the back roads. We sure will. We look forward to it. 
And, you know, like I said, I encourage people to get out and about and always reach out to us if you'd like travel tips or any help, or we're happy to facilitate that for you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.